All right, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8, if you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you should be able to find that on page 1074. Um, Now, technically, last week we finished our series in Ecclesiastes, our study of God's wisdom there in Ecclesiastes, uh, with our wrap-up of the final section there in chapter 12. Um, But before we move on to our next series... Uh, I wanted to take some time to expand on the big picture that Solomon ended with that was kind of the theme of the whole book, um, what, what we might call abiding in Christ uh, or discipleship or any of several other familiar terms uh, that are all kind of in that same wheelhouse, that same vein. And we've talked about discipleship before, albeit uh, briefly. It's a familiar concept to anyone who's been a Christian for like five minutes, um, But I think it will be valuable for us to work through this and think about what a life of discipleship would look like. Uh, In that, we're going to be jumping around a little bit this morning, but we're going to start in in Mark 8 and hold on to that as kind of the core of what we're talking about as a starting point for reasons that I hope will be, be apparent once we get into it. But as always, before we get into his word, we need his spirit to speak to us through it. So if you're able now, please stand with me while I pray. Remain standing as I read from Mark chapter 8. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word because in it is truth that we we could not find anywhere else. We could not reason our way to any way that we need you simply to reveal to us. And so we praise you that you have done so. And we praise you that you so care for us and for your word that you will make sure that it stays pure even in the face of our hearts that want to twist it to mean what we want it to mean. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be present among us by your Spirit this morning. That you would make this, your Word, root down into our hearts and grow and produce a crop in our lives. That we would be pleasing servants of yours. That we would grow more and more in our Christ-likeness. Make your name great in the reading and the preaching of this, your word, Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Mark chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 31. This is God's word. And he, that is Jesus, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. I read a story this week from a first grade teacher uh, about an interaction that she'd had with one of her students on the first day of school. Now, this student had, of course, just finished kindergarten. Uh, and was accustomed to the half-day schedule where you come and you're there for the morning and you go home at noon. And that's kind of the way the school day goes. So he was 
As noon approached, he started getting his things together, getting ready to leave to go home when he was actually supposed to be going with the class to lunch. And so the teacher came over and asked him what he was doing and said, I'm going home. And she tried to explain that now that he's in first grade, he would have a longer school day. She said, you'll go eat lunch now, and then after lunch, you'll come back to the room and we'll do some more work before you go home. And the student looked at her in just frank disbelief, hoping that she was kidding. And finally, convinced of her seriousness, he put his hands on his hips and he demanded, who on earth signed me up for this program? Uh, as Christians, it can be easy for us to feel a little like that student when we consider, when we think about the Christian life. The requirements are daunting. Surely the Lord doesn't really expect me to forgive 70 times 7. That's crazy. Surely he doesn't want me to turn the other cheek when somebody hits me. Wait, 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 wait. wait. What do you mean, take up my cross? And it isn't long, as you consider these explanations and requirements, it isn't long before we want to say with that first grader, who signed me up for this program? As you may remember from our study several years ago, this section of Mark's gospel is the thematic center of the book. This is the hinge on which it turns, moving from the question in the first half, who is Jesus? that culminated in Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then moving toward, in the second half of the book, the, the question of, okay, what did he come to do? What is his purpose, his mission? And if we miss that main theme, that movement from who is he to what is he here to do, then we're not going to get anything else right about the book of Mark. But that dual theme of Jesus' identity and purpose, or maybe mission is better, uh, that is not the only thing that Mark is doing in this book, the not the only theme that Mark touches on. Intertwined in there with Jesus' identity and mission is the reality of Jesus' call on the disciples' lives, what he was calling them to be and to do in response to Jesus' identity and mission. How his mission requires changes to their lives forever, permanently. Now, I, I want to be clear this morning because it is so easy for us to import our assumptions into the text of Scripture, even without realizing. With the best will in the world, it's easy for us to have our assumptions in the back of our head without realizing it and just drop those whole onto Scripture, and then, of course, we see them there because that's what we brought to the text, and that's dangerous. There are an enormous number of things in our lives that we don't, examine but merely assume to be true because someone told you who you trust because you read it somewhere once even because it's just something you picked up from the air around you from the culture around you as if by osmosis there's an old story that some of you have heard me tell this before uh, about two young fish swimming by and an older fish comes by past them and greets them hey boys how's the water today a couple of minutes later, the young fish have swum on, and a couple of minutes later, they look, one of them looks at the other and says, what in the world is water? This, all too often when we talk about discipleship, what comes to mind, unbidden, mostly unchallenged, is an assumption of a particular type of program. We think of discipleship, and we think of a discipleship program. 
whether that is a fundamentally bad program that started with a list of bad behaviors to cut out and ended with a list of good behaviors supposedly that you're supposed to replace them with and absolutely nothing in there to provide any impetus or power to do either of those things or whether it was a basically good program that was designed to help you seek genuine reliance on Christ but all too often left that process to the works of spiritual disciplines and accountability partners to help you stay on task. And at the end of the day, it was a program dominantly looking at particular behaviors. Now, I want to be clear, because such things are well and good as far as they go. It is right to focus on particular activities that Christ has called us to, to avoid sins that he's called us to reject and and die to. Those are good as far as it goes. They just don't go very far. And they don't go anywhere all by themselves. Now, obviously, that first type of program is death on toast. Maybe organic, vegan, conflict-free avocado toast, but it's still death on toast. But even when the program is well put together, even when it is uh, appropriately ordered and has reminders in it, it is much too easy for our sinful hearts to take even a good program and reshape it subtly twist it, poison it until it's functioning exactly like the, the, the terrible program was. The best program in the world, when it encounters our sinful hearts, can be turned easily into a moralistic or legalistic set of activities that will make me holier by themselves. Ways by which, activities by which I can earn God's favor. Obviously, that is not right discipleship okay Alex that's fine nobody wants legalism even if our sinful hearts kind of slip into it almost by default if that's not discipleship what is discipleship that's a great question I'm glad you asked as we study the accounts of Jesus' life with the disciples, the, the, both the, the small group, the 12, and also the larger group of, uh, of disciples there, although he does correct their actions sometimes, the emphasis in Jesus' ministry with the disciples is entirely on their hearts, on their characters, forming them into something new. More specifically, they are shaped individually and as a group toward a new character that reflects Christ. So when we talk about discipleship, one author placed the emphasis as a a move toward the formation of Christ-like character in the disciple. Discipleship is a moving toward the formation of Christ-like character in us as disciples. And of course, changes to our character must necessarily result in changes to attitudes and especially even to changes in behaviors. Those things will come about as your character is transformed. But the behavior is the caboose, not the engine. It is not the driving force. How did I get there? We talked uh, last week about the two questions that each human has to answer in life. Who am I and who is God? And how we answer that question will define how we live in the world. And the way the eternal Son of God answers these questions for us fundamentally and primarily is given in his atoning death and resurrection. In that act, he answers these questions of who am I and who is he? This defines who we are, condemned, broken, sinful, 
And it defines who He is. Gracious, merciful, loving, almost beyond belief. And this action of His for our benefit redefines everything, reorients the entirety of our lives toward Him. Of course, we find reconciliation with God not by the bare fact of the crucifixion and the resurrection, nor even by giving mental assent to the historical reality of it. Remember, even the demons acknowledge the historical reality of it. That doesn't save them. Rather, we are reconciled, we are transformed when we surrender wholly to the atoning healing, the atoning work of Christ. When you do that, the Holy Spirit enters the core of your being, and we're going to nuance this in a minute, so don't, you know, don't shoot me just yet. We'll get there. Um, the Holy Spirit enters the core of your being, enters your heart, and begins the work of transformation, of sanctification. Thus, the language we use for the Christian life, being conformed to Christ, imitating Christ, uh, sharing in union with Christ, or living out our union with Christ, abiding in Christ, many other similar phrases, and they're all great, don't get me wrong. At the end of the day, are all the results of the same cause. Jesus, by His Spirit, enables and facilitates in us the accomplishment of what He has taught and calls for and exemplifies, what He commands. He enables and facilitates and accomplishes in us all that he teaches and calls for and commands and exemplifies. Dan Allender and Trimper Longman in their book, Breaking the Idols of Your Heart, get really to the heart of the matter when they said this. This is a quote from their book. He says, Jesus relentlessly undermines all that is not God in our hearts and lives to make room for the God who has redeemed our hearts. Jesus relentlessly undermines all that is not God in our lives and hearts to make room for the God who has redeemed our hearts. Jesus knows exactly what is best for us, both in general as human creatures and specifically as you personally. He knows your name, you whom he has called. He knows the very best good that you could ever have is nothing more and nothing less than to be made more and more like Christ in the image of Christ. Christ likeness is what true humanity is, embodying fully and truly the image of God in us, looking like the one we were created to look like. And this is what he does in us by his Spirit. The Westminster Larger Catechism, in, answer, in, the, in answering what is sanctification, says it this way, the, the Holy Spirit applies the death and resurrection of Christ to Christians, renewing them in the whole of their being back to the true and unmarred image of God, putting the seeds of repentance and all other saving graces into their hearts, but he doesn't stop at just planting the seeds. That would be grace amazing that he would plant the seeds in our hearts, but he doesn't just plant the seeds. He, in fact, stirs them up and causes them to increase and strengthen, strengthen, strengthens them so that all of salvation, salvation accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection, and salvation applied to us, all of salvation is entirely the work of God. And yet there's something of a 
paradox in there, isn't there? The Holy Spirit does it. The work of justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification are all entirely the work of the Holy Spirit on the basis of the blood of Christ shed in our place on the cross and on the empty tomb. It is entirely, all of it, His work. And, not but, and, and I am called to pursue them with the whole of my being. He does it entirely, and I'm called to do it. How does that work? The Spirit plants saving graces in us and stirs them up and strengthens them for a purpose so that we more and more, by His grace, because of His Spirit in us doing it, that we more and more die to sin and live for righteousness. And lest we think that a pure misery, losing of all those things which, which make us most happy, uh, that, that all of that, you know, when we talk about dying to self, we are tempted to think, oh, it's, well, you know, if, I die, if I'm dying to myself, I need to get rid of all the things that make me happy. God's just a cosmic killjoy, whatever, and I just need to put all of that stuff aside and be miserable all the time in this life so that I can be happy in the next life. That's not how it works. Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, he was a British journalist and a Christian apologist in the mid-1900s, give or take. He said it this way. He said, I can say that I never knew what joy was like until I gave up pursuing happiness or cared to live until I chose to die. For these two discoveries, I am beholden to Jesus. We think that we know what will be best for us. I think I know what is best for me because obviously I know better about my life than anybody else in the universe. I know what's best. But here's the thing. We get that right about as often as a room full of blind monkeys with typewriters produce perfect copies of the works of William Shakespeare, which is to say we don't. Christ knows what is best for us, and he is shaping us by what he gives us in this life and by what he asks of us in this life. C.S. Lewis, writing in Mere Christianity, pictures Christ saying this. He says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self. I have come to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it. I want to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self with all the desires with which, which you think are innocent as well as the ones you think are wicked. Give me the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. And this is the essence of the call to discipleship. It is the first and most important character trait that, calls, that Christ calls for from us and instills in us by His Holy Spirit. Radical or unconditional surrender to the will of God. This is what we are called to. Radical or unconditional surrender to the will of God. This is what is meant probably by the most well-known call to Christ's disciples that we have here in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Radical, unconditional surrender to Christ's will. This is a difficult verse. 
I mean, it would be difficult even if it were only as difficult as we typically think of it. You want me to take up a cross and die? Well, I'd say, hang on now, Jesus, that's asking a lot. That would be hard enough. But what it actually means is much harder. What is actually being asked for here is not a denial of things for ourselves. It is not even primarily about dying, literal physical dying, as if there were some value in misery considered abstractly. Now, too often we think carrying our cross, this concept of carrying our cross, means that we should pursue the most uncomfortable things in the world, find the least fun things there are, and that, that either that, that is holiness or that it instills holiness in us, that misery leads to what is good. That what Christ wants we should be, is this, we should simply be miserable for Christ, that there is something particularly holy about self-abasement. And y'all, this is not new to us. This was, you know, you study the church history throughout the Middle Ages, and this is what you see. People constantly doing things to make themselves miserable in the false idea that that would somehow make them more holy in the next life. We think that somehow Christ wants, what he wants for the disciple is to deliberately deny and chastise himself, deliberately carry the cross of self-abasing suffering and follow me. Any joy, any hope, all of it must be killed. You've got to get rid of that mess. But this is merely substituting one form of arrogance for another. This changes egocentric self-promotion into egocentric self-abasement or self-chastisement. But they're both egocentric self-focused. It assumes that Christ's purpose for us here is toiling in misery until Christ returns, a life marked only by pain and suffering. The reality is that we're very good at making everything all about me. Either we do that... um, straightforwardly demanding our own way always my way or the highway or we do it like the proverbial jewish mother-in-law you go enjoy your thing i'll just stand out here in the rain i'm sure it'll be fine i'll catch cold and die but you have a nice life it'll be great but even a very simplistic study even a very surface level study of god's word leads to a very different conclusion Again and again, Old and New Testament, the people of God put their trust in Him. They follow His ways and they receive His mercy and they become more human, not less. They develop and they flourish. They grow more and more like God, more and more what God created them to be. And yes, we give up things, but they're sinful, awful things. And we get God's good in return. We are not given misery, we are given true health, true happiness. One of the messages of the cross that we must not miss, the the coming of the eternal second person of the Trinity to substitute himself for us, is that we, broken, finite creatures though we are, we are valuable in God's eyes. Remember the parable of the birds in the air and the lilies of the field Are you not of much more value than these? Look at how God takes care of these little birds that are sold for nothing and the lilies that nobody even bothers buying because they're everywhere. Look at how God cares for them. Are you not worth so much more than them? Maybe there's something in your history that tells you that you aren't valuable. 
somebody in your childhood who told you that you were a waste of space or useless or whatever. That, that voice rings in your mind again and again. Something in your personality maybe that demands that you think of yourself as terrible. Maybe you just have a voice in the back of your mind or even the front of your mind saying, I am no good. That is not the Holy Spirit. That is not your Lord speaking in that voice. Rather than a call to self-abasement, the call to take up your cross summons us essentially to surrender control. This includes surrendering to God that self-abasing inner voice which is nothing more than a form of negative pride. Positive pride is, man, I'm so great, I can do anything. Negative pride is, I'm a worm and can do nothing and not even God could redeem me. Both are pride. The eternal God of the universe, Christian, loves you. He sealed that love to you by His sacrificial death on the cross. Who are you to tell God that He's wrong and that really you're not not worth all that bother? Who are you to tell God He's wrong? Instead, the call to deny yourself and take up your cross is a call to surrender control of your life, to act contrary to to your current nature, to who you were. Uh, This is the same grammatical construction. How did I get there? The same grammatical construction that is used here, Paul uses in 2 Timothy 2.13. Let me read that. This is a familiar verse. Uh, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's the same construction there. When God says this about himself, that God can't deny himself, what he is saying there is he cannot act contrary to his own nature. He cannot cease to be who he is. He cannot stop being God. But that is precisely what Jesus calls us to do, a radical abandoning of our own identity and self-determination. Why? Because our nature is sinner. Our nature is attempted usurper of God's position and authority. That is who we are apart from Christ. The very best thing possible for us is to deny that nature, to act 100% contrarily to it and to that fundamental inclination to rebellion and thus to submit our will and character and identity and nature wholly to the one who has the right to command it. Such self-denial is on a different level altogether from, for example, giving up chocolates for Lent. It is not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of the self itself. Of course, this radical surrender of our will may, in some cases, lead to physical death, may lead sometimes to giving up little pleasures that aren't innately sinful like chocolate. But those are not in themselves the denial of self. They are the result of the denial of self. Neil Postman, in his famous book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, wrote this. He said, I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion when it is delivered as easy and amusing, as we often do, 
When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about cheap grace, which is a very similar concept. This is grace that lets you get away with whatever you want. It's the fire insurance gospel. I got my fire insurance. I can do what I want. Everything's great. Rather than a radical transformation that leads us to leave the nets behind, to take up the cross and follow the master wherever he will go, regardless of hardship or joys or anything in between. So here's the question, or questions, I suppose. To what extent are you today surrendering to God? To what extent are you obeying Him, living out His character and not your own? To what extent does this pursuit of radical submission to Christ's will over your own will affect your relationship with others? affect your relationship with yourself even, how you think about yourself. To what extent are you surrendering to God today? Because what we are called to in taking up our cross is not death for its own sake. Jesus never called for death without also giving life. In John 12, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When we follow the crucified and risen Christ, when we are conformed to his image and his character and his likeness, when we are being discipled by him, when we deny ourselves and take up our cross, he grows in us new fruit befitting the new nature that we now have from him. You know the passage. It's one of the most famous in Scripture, Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. And y'all, we focus on this list, and for good reason. It is the picture of the cruciform life, and we must pursue these things. At the same time, we must be very clear, they are fruit. They are fruit. They are not the core of your being. They are the results of the core of your being. The core of your being is your new nature, your new self in Christ. Discipleship at its heart is pursuing Christ in radical surrender to His will. As you pursue Him, as you delight in His nature and character and His love for you, as you draw life from roots dug into God's Word, His revelation of Himself and of you, as you are discipled or sanctified by Christ, this fruit will happen naturally. An apple tree doesn't Stand in the field thinking, I need to produce apples. I'm going to produce apples. Here I'm going. I'm going to try and I'm going to work really hard and produce apples. Of course not. It is what it is. By nature, it produces apples. That's what an apple tree does. That's what they are. Focus your life on pursuing radical submission to Christ's will. And in that, you will discover new growth, new fruit. Because he is faithful. 
And what he purposed before time began, before he even created time, what he purposed then, what he began in the garden, what he began in his incarnation, what he began in his death and resurrection, what he began in you, Christian, he will certainly finish. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, for your work by your Spirit in our hearts to transform us to lead us into radical submission to you. We pray that, we would, that you would make us aware of what you are doing, that you would cause us to voluntarily submit with full awareness of what you are doing in us and what you are calling us to. Give us opportunity to submit to you, to submit our wills to yours, to submit our hopes and our fears and our arrogance and our whatever, our joys, to you. And as you give us that opportunity, Lord, by your Spirit, we pray that you give us the grace to actually submit. Transform our hearts from the inside out. Root us deep in your word, in your revelation, in your character. And transform us as that flows through us and defines us. We long to be defined by your truth, by your gospel. We need your spirit at work in us to accomplish that. Do what only you can, Lord Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen.